Are you for real? Hey, you better be home by 10. Are you for real? Are you for real? Are you for real? Well, good morning. Thanks for being here today. As you saw in the announcements, if you're new with us, uh, we started something last month uh, in lieu of our Connect class that we used to do. We do this thing called Discover TBC once a month on the first Sunday. That is today for November. So if you're new with us, you've been coming for some time, and uh, you want to hear more about the church, who we are, how you can get connected, uh, Ron and I, uh, whoever's leading that, does a tour of the church and shares the history of the church as part of that uh, Discover TBC. Please join us after service today. In room 316, lunch is provided. It's right after service. So uh, a few months ago, uh, I was driving with my son to T-ball. He was five at the time. And uh, from the back seat, he says, Dad, I want to tell you something, but I'm scared to share it. And I said, well, why don't you first just tell me why you're scared to share what you want to tell me, and we'll go from there. He says, well, uh, the reason why I'm scared is because the thing I want to do, I know God will be mad at me if I do it. So I said, all right, well, let's go with this. How about I promise not to be mad, and I'll just, we'll just talk through it. Just, just tell me the thing you want to do. He says, well, sometimes when you're driving fast, I get this idea that I just want to jump out of the car and see what would happen. <laughs> wow reflecting and obviously checking the locks on the doors. Um, Ezra then says a statement I believe we all can relate to, every child, man, or woman. He said, Dad, why do I sometimes want to do things that I know God doesn't want me to do? I said, great question, bud. First, never jump out of a moving car, you'll get hurt. And second, that feeling and desire you have to do things that you believe God does not want you to do, it's this thing called your sin nature. And of course, our five-year-old said, what is a sin nature? We're going to come back to his question in just a moment. Because if you've been with us since September, we started this series that we have entitled, Are You For Real? Our summer series was called Relevant Faith. That series was all about the evidence for the Christian faith and the proclamation of the Christian faith. Are You For Real is now all about the demonstration of our Christian faith. And we've been using this letter, uh, the book in your Bible called 1 Corinthians, to guide our way. Paul wrote this letter on his second missionary journey after he had been gone from Corinth for some time after establishing the church there. And, and he at this time was in Ephesus and some believers from Corinth come there and say, Paul, you need to either get back to Corinth or write to them to address some serious issues going on in the church. The Corinthian believers, we find out, were struggling like we do of letting sinful culture creep into their lives, and also causing division within the local body. They had a, a strong proclamation of faith, but they too often had a weak demonstration 
of that faith. As we've seen in the study so far, they, they studied with, with uh, living for, for man or people. They're, they're Christian celebrities instead of keeping their focus on Jesus. And they had a serious struggle in the area of sex. The city's name became synonymous with sexual perversion. As we've seen, they, they, it became known, this word, Corinthianize. That word meant gross sexual immorality in the land. In this series, Ron is taking us exegetically, chapter by chapter, through 1 Corinthians. We're going to continue to do that next week. But at times, as we're going through these chapters, we're going to hit the pause button. We're going to zoom out from the nitty-gritty details of the letter to cover what we're going to call big questions from Corinth. What are these themes we are seeing in this letter that, that we as the 21st century church, we as the Bible chapel little c, want to learn from and not follow the way of the church in Corinth? And one theme that's crystal clear just two chapters into this letter is this. The Corinthian church, they needed to rein in their sin nature. And if we're honest, so does the 21st century church who looks more and more like the culture around us. Today we're going to address this big question. What are the ways and motivations a believer can keep their sin nature in check? We're going to look at a passage of scripture that supports what we see in 1 Corinthians on three ways to keep our sin nature in check and three motivations to support those methods to do so. Before we jump into God's word, as always, let's pray and ask the Lord to lead us. Father, we come before you today thankful as we just sang as a church that we can run to our Father. And sometimes, God, when we do as followers of Christ, as we sang about, you're a surgeon to our heart. You want to you wanna sometimes cut us open and remove the junk in our lives, the things that are inhibiting us from running hard after your son. God, as we address our sin nature today, that is not a fun topic to talk about. Sometimes it's hard. It takes vulnerability. It takes humility. But God, to be the church you call us to be, I pray that we would enter our time in your word willing to hear from you, that we may leave here today stronger by the power of your spirit united to be a demonstration of what it means to follow hard after Jesus Christ. So Father, as always, let the words that come out of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be honoring and pleasing to you, O God, in Christ's name, amen. If you have your Bibles, uh, your Bible on your phone, wherever you go for God's word, open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. Before we jump into our text, and while you're turning there, let me, let me give that, that, that answer to the question of our son who said, what is our sin nature? Simplest definition is this. Humanity has a natural propensity or inclination to rebel against God, hence to sin. If given the choice to follow God's way or our way on our own effort, we will always have the natural inclination to go our own way. We, parents, we see this in our children. We do not have to teach our children. I say this often up here uh, relating to our three young children. We don't have to teach them how to disobey or teach them how to be selfish. That happens naturally. Instead, we go into great lengths to teach them how to obey authority how to be unselfish 
with the things that they have. If you would open up your phone right now and search daily news, I guarantee at least half of the articles would be directly related to the sinful nature of man. Homicides, theft, lies, greed, sexual immorality. As someone once said, wherever there are people, there will be trouble. From the moment that sin entered the human race with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, Scripture says that every person apart from Christ is born with a sin nature. We call this from Scripture the imputation of sin upon humanity. Romans 5.12 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, speaking of Adam as the head, and death through sin, so death has spread to all men, because all have sinned. Sinful behavior comes natural to us as human beings. Charles Spurgeon says, as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you're deceived. And when someone trusts in Christ as their Lord and Savior, Their sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. We are secure in Christ. We are declared righteous before God because we now reside positionally in Jesus. And we still have our sin nature. We live what you might want to call in a state of already not yet when it comes to our salvation. We're already secure in Christ, but we're not yet perfected in Christ We still have our sin nature to battle with daily until either we go to be with Christ or he returns. So with that background, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 19. And Peter wrote this letter to a bunch of persecuted believers who were scattered around the first century world. He wrote to them uh, mainly for two purposes. He wanted to nail down and remind them of who they are in Christ, but also to urge them now to live and demonstrate what they are in Christ to a watching world and to live with that demonstration with urgency. In verse 13, where we're going to start, the first word we see is this word, therefore. And we know every time you see therefore, he's building off what he just said. So you have to go back to get the proper context. Well, in verses 1 through 12, Peter gives no appeals, no rebukes, no exhortations. All he does for 12 verses is remind them, this is who you are in Christ. Never forget who you are in Christ. And I love 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 sums up that section. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Let's say living hope together. Ready? Living hope. One more time, louder. Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter is nailing down to these believers who are facing persecution that you and I don't even understand how bad they had it during that day. And he says, church, regardless of the hardships you face, you have a living, constant hope because it resides in our resurrected living Savior. So with that foundation placed, 
in verse 13, Peter says, therefore, it's time to start demonstrating that living hope. It's time to be a living demonstration to a watching world of what it means to be secure in Christ. And I see in verses 13 through 19, part of this that he guides them are ways to keep your sin nature in check. Gives us three ways and three motivations. Let's start with verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He begins with this phrase, prepare your mind for action. That phrase literally reads, gird up the loins of your mind. It had this idea that they had to be mentally prepared and wrap up their thoughts in order to run for Christ. If you lived during that day, you'll see a picture here. There was a process of girding up your loins, meaning your robe. So if you ever find yourself wearing a robe and you need to run, follow this six-part process. It's pretty simple. Thread it through the legs, go around the waist, maybe through the legs again, I don't know. And you wrap it up and you would do that so you are ready for battle. I was thinking, well, that doesn't really relate to today. What are there other ways we can say this phrase? I thought, well, certain generations, maybe Gen X, baby boomers, it's that phrase, roll up your sleeves. Roll up those thought sleeves that you have to be ready to go. For millennials and Gen Z, I thought it might be lace up your Yeezys. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> Parents or grandparents, if you have no idea what Yeezys are, just ask your teenager. I also think today they're still in, it's like saying, lace up your Jordans. Be ready to go play the game on the court. So these are the only Jordans that I own. And while we were uh, doing ministry in Wilkinsburg, we started this open gym. And I went to the open gym, and we had all these teenagers and young adults playing, and all of them had Jordans. And I went home and said, Kristen, if I'm going to relate to these kids, i got to go buy Jordans. <laughs> and she said, how about you grow up? You're in your 30s. <laughs> I said, i got to get them. So I went to Edgewood Town Center, Foot Locker, walked in, looked at the prices, went over to the guy, said, do you have any Jordans on sale? Like, give me the cheapest Jordans you got. 70 bucks right here, 70 bucks. So I go to the gym the next week, wanting the kids to see that Pastor Dave's got Jordans, but no one says a thing. So I sit down next to one of uh, the teens who was always upbeat, and I, you know, I'm lacing up my Jordans. I'm getting ready to play. And I say, hey, you see what I got? He looks down, looks up and says, those aren't real Jordans. I said, what do you mean? The logo is literally right here. Looks down, looks back up and says, Pastor Dave, those are cheap Jordans. <laughs> so if you're ever buying Jordans, you got to buy legit ones. They're like Jordan 8, Jordan 9. There's a year to every one of them or the retros, just in case you wanted to know. Actually, another story that doesn't relate to my sermon is, have you ever heard yet of the Jesus shoes? Anyone heard of the Jesus shoes that just came out? These are, these are shoes that were just sourced uh, they're, they're Nike Air 97s that have the air bubble. They are injected with water sourced directly from the Jordan River. They are inscribed with that Matthew 14, 25, the verse of Jesus walking on water. They have a gold cross through the laces. 
And the insole actually is scented with frankincense. And each pair is blessed by a priest in Brooklyn. No joke. These shoes were sold online and they sold out immediately. Some pairs going for as much as $3,000. That story, again, has nothing to do with my sermon except for the fact that I got a great deal on my Jordans. <laughs> great deal. Not backing down from it. Back to what Peter's telling us. Whether it's gird up the loins of your, mi- uh, of your mind or roll up your thought sleeves or, or lace up your mental Jordans, he's saying you need to collect your thoughts. You need to collect your mindset because if your mind's not right, there's no way you can run for Christ against today's culture. No way. And he says you need to be sober-minded. That means you cannot let your mind be intoxicated from the outside world. To tell you, no, 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 no. There's another way. There's a better way. Peter says you have to start there. Do you have your thoughts under control? So first way is this. We have to prepare our minds daily through God's word. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, as we talked about last week, who indwells in every believer, when we commit ourselves to gird up the loins of our thoughts, collect them so we're ready to run the battle of this life, the only way to do that is to be in God's word daily. This is the only weapon we have for the schemes of the devil and to go against the world system that's counter to God. And this has less to do with intellect and more to do with the discipline and determination of every believer. As my wife will affirm to you, I am not the brightest Italian in the world. Therefore, the most encouraging verse to me has always been Acts 4.13, when the disciples are doing amazing things and the Jewish Sanhedrin brings them in thinking that these wise men were going to walk through the door and they're astonished. And it says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized just one thing, these men had been with Jesus. What sets apart a believer who's going to deny their sin nature and run hard for Christ in today's culture? Well, since Jesus isn't physically with us, this is what it looks like to be with Jesus today. This is one who is with Jesus. They are in his word every day, ready to run that race and to keep their sin nature in check. And for those who are runners who don't like running in the winter, they will always tell you that they schedule a a race in the spring, maybe the Pittsburgh Marathon in May, because it, it forces them to have that goal in mind to be disciplined throughout the winter months. Well, every discipline needs a goal, future goal to focus on. And that's what Peter gives us in way number two, the end of that verse. Prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Way number two is this. Wake up every day 
with the goal in mind that I'm going to keep my focus on Jesus and my hope in his impending return. The discipline to prepare our minds daily stems from a confidence and a hope, not in earthly relationships, not in material gain, not in social media status. No, our hope and our confidence rests in Jesus, in the fact that he is going to return today to end this already not yet state and make us perfect and complete in him. If you could wake up and put this on your mirror, do it, or on the back of your phone, whatever. My present confidence resides in my future hope. Let's say that together. My present confidence resides in my future hope. My confidence does not reside in relationships, in wealth, in notoriety. My confidence resides and knowing what's to come. And when my eyes are there, I'm gonna prepare my mind for action, knowing that that's what God desires of me. And if we do those first two ways, God's word every day, that focus of Christ every day, then way number three is gonna come a lot easier because I believe it's the hardest and the one that we see the 21st century church battling more and more each and every day. Look at verses 14 and 15. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Here's number three. In every decision you make, will you choose God's objective truth over your subjective desires? That way flies directly in the face of our culture today, the culture of relativism that says there is no absolute truth. There is no objective truth. Every society or stage and age can be different. Actually, every person can have their own form of truth. There is no such thing as an absolute truth standard. That's why in 2016, the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year was post-truth. Objective facts are now less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Peter in the first century church, we today say that's nonsense. And how are we going to be a set-apart church unless we have a set-apart truth that we follow? God's absolute and objective truth is what separates believers who look and act differently than those who are not in Christ in our world. That word holy is always we see in scripture and here again today. It means to have a set apart ability that we have as believers because of the Holy Spirit in us. It's part of God's nature, represents his set apartness. Just like God who's omnipresent, he's always involved and active in his creation, but yet he's set apart and holy from the world system and sin here in creation. So are we called to be active in this world, present in this world. But man, there's a set-apart conduct of the believer. And the only way that can happen is if we commit ourselves to following God's objective truth over our subjective desires. When a believer's sin nature wants to pull us back, to Peter says our former ignorance, meaning when we didn't know any better before Christ, we must always go back to God's word and say, I am committed to following 
God's objective truth. Let's get practical on this one for a moment. We could cover many areas of sin today. We could cover greed, gossip, worry, you name it. There is no sin greater than the next. But let's spend a minute here on the area of relationships, which continues to be a hot topic for churches and believers as many continue to waver when it comes to God's word. In the church, we need to do marriage differently. When our marriages get tough, we don't know if we can go another round of counseling. We don't know if it's time to throw in the towel. And with no biblical grounds for divorce, our sin nature will entice us and say, you know what, maybe God just wants you to be happy. If we let our mental robes down of God's objective truth and allow our subjective desires to rise, we might respond saying, yeah, God just wants me to be happy. No, God wants you to be holy, set apart. He desires our marriages as Ephesians chapter 5 to represent Christ and his church, to conduct ourselves with humility, servant leadership, and love and respect. Culture is going to say throw in the towel when it gets hard. And our subjective desires might start to give in. But then we come back to God's objective truth. For Jesus said in Matthew 19, 6, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. If you find yourself today in a marriage relationship that's on the brink and you're struggling, come to us, talk to us. Let someone else speak into your marriage. And let's follow God's objective truth and not what the world says about marriage. Young people, dating and sex, when your sexual impulses tell you God will understand, I mean, you can go as far as you want as long as you just don't cross that line. And then it becomes true sexual immorality. Or you know what? While we're dating or engaged, God will understand if we live together before marriage. I mean, seriously, it's financially irresponsible if we don't. God will understand. Man, that's a phrase of your sin nature enticing you. No, he won't. God desires for you to be holy, to set apart your body for him and for, we pray, your future spouse one day. Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor by all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I met with a good friend I hadn't seen in some time last month. He just turned 40 and he's not married. He asked me to continue to keep him accountable with his sexual desires and inclinations that pop up as a man daily. And then he said this in our conversation. I've come to realize, what if I never marry? In the next 40 years, I have to live according to what God calls me to live sexually. He said, I'm willing to do it. And will you help me stay accountable? Maybe for some of you, it's the battle of homosexuality. You have this impulse, inclination, for the same sex and your sin nature entices you to say I can't help how I feel 
I can't help whom I was designed to love. Ten years ago, I met with a college student who was going down that road, and we met at the old farmhouse coffee. And uh, we met, and he openly shared. And in his humility, he said, but I want to do what God's standard is. And I said, well, we have to begin here. Do you believe that God's word is his word? And he said, yes. I said, well, first two, three sessions, we're going to walk through God's truth on this area. And then we'll go from there. And he was in. So for two sessions, we started in Genesis. We looked at how God, by design, created male and female. And only in the female-male relationship can you go together as one flesh, physically, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. And how we were designed that way by God. And then we went to Old Testament, New Testament. That it wasn't an old covenant or new covenant sin. Throughout Scripture, we see that homosexuality goes against God's design and is sin, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 6. It's no greater sin than any other, but it's right in there with greed and drunkenness. And after we walked through that for two sessions, I asked him, where do you stand on God's word in this issue? He said, I can't deny it. God's word says homosexuality is not of his design and his sin. I said, we have to start there because we're going to pray that God removes that desire from you. But what if a month goes by and it's still there? What if a year goes by, it's still there? What if, because you have your sin nature till you go to be with Christ, what if that desire always creeps up on you? Will you always say God's objective truth over my subjective desire? We looked at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's key to understand in that verse, I don't see anything in there that says God will always remove the temptation. But he will always not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. He will also always provide a way of escape. He will always give you the ability to endure it. Sin nature says the way of escape is just to indulge in it. Scripture says, lean on God and the objective truth of his word. What a beautiful picture of holiness when one can say, God, whether you remove the temptation or not, I will always be committed to your objective truth over my subjective desires. Peter gives us three ways. Prepare your minds for action with his word. Without his word, you're, you're going to be lost and give it into that sin nature every single time. Second, keep your goal and focus in mind that everything you do is not focused on this temporary stuff, but on the future goal that Christ will return. And number three, when you have those things clicking, whenever your subjective desires want to rise up, say, nope, I'm going with God's objective truth. And now he gives us three ways in order to live those Three motivations to live those three ways out. Look at verse 16. This one's as straightforward as it comes. Since it is written, you shall be holy. You shall be set apart for I am holy. Motivation number one is simply this. Our heavenly father calls us to model his character. 
taken directly from Leviticus 11.44, where God in that section of scripture was calling Israel and going through all the dietary laws and, and other things he was doing. He was doing that to make them distinct and separate from the unbelieving nations. And Peter says we're called to be the same. We are called to be separate and distinct as the people of God. And just as he does in verse 14, he says we do this because we are God's obedient children. Dads, I don't know about you, but it is a humbling time when your kids get old enough and they start copying the things you do. They start imitating the body motions you do, the phrases you say, and you're like, I better watch what I say. And they even start to have the little quirks that you have. You're like, sorry, son, I wish you didn't get that one, but you did. I believe every child desires to have a father figure to look up to. One that they can model. One that they can look up to. One who would love and care for them. And a standard of character that they can follow. See, regardless of how your earthly father relationship has gone, we have a heavenly father who loves us more than any man could, cares for you than any person could. And he says, my children, model my character. Not an option. It's a command. Model my character. And I gave you my son. God could have redeemed this any way he desired. He could have dropped Jesus down, had him get killed right away, redemption of our sins. But for some reason, we get this beautiful picture of the life of Christ to model Jesus who was fully God and fully man. And God says, the first motivation is this. Model your heavenly father. If you say you love me, as Jesus said in John 15 three times, you'll obey my commands. You'll obey my commands. You'll obey my commands. I believe today's church, more than anything else, especially the next generation needs to see, we need, they need to see less Christians who by their standard believe they are smart and just more Christians are flat out obedient. It's not about how many passages or verses you know. It's about how many passages and verses you actually live out. God calls us to model his character. That's motivation number one. Motivation number two brings eternity in mind. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father, meaning you are a child of God, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Motivation number two is this. Our heavenly father will also hold us accountable. Your sin nature has your mind and your heart when it starts to entice you and say, God will forgive you. He loves you. You can give in to that. You can let your mental robes down on this one. He'll forgive you. Man, that is a dangerous pattern to live as a believer. As the perfect model of fatherhood, Peter says that God judges his children impartially. 
And Peter motivates these believers, again, who are living in exile, to live with reverent fear because one day they will give an account of their life before God. What we do today matters. It's not I trust in Christ, I'm secure for eternity, nothing matters anymore. That's not of Scripture. What you do today as a follower of Christ matters to your heavenly Father. I believe Peter has in mind what we see in the second letter to Corinth from Paul when he said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, whether you're home or away, make it our aim, church, to please our heavenly Father. Why? Because we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We've looked at this in the past, but that word judgment seat means the bema seat, taken directly from the city of Corinth during their yearly Isthmian Games, which was like their Olympics of that time, when they would have athletic and musical competitions. And at the end of the games, all the athletes would come before the judge at the Bema seat, and they each would receive a reward for their work. God says, every believer one day will stand before me And the Bema seat is different than the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. Don't confuse the two. The great white throne is for those who never trust in Christ and they will receive their punishment, eternal separation from God. The Bema seat is not a seat of punishment but of reward. It's for believers only. And we don't know what these eternal rewards entail. We don't. But here's what we definitely know. Our heavenly Father is watching everything we do. And what we do now in the body for Christ matters to him. And you can look at that in two different ways. One, you can be in an unhealthy fear. We're like, oh boy, I better watch what I do. I better watch what I try to get away with. Or a healthy reverent fear. My father loves me so much that he didn't say, Trust in me, and I don't care about what you do anymore. He said, trust in me, and you become my child. I'm going to watch everything you do because I care. It's like the son who loves, he has a dad who comes to every ball game, shows up at every graduation, always there to talk when something's going on in their life. Our Heavenly Father is active and present every moment of our lives because he cares for us. He loves us and he says, I will hold you accountable. Peter says, keep your sin nature in check because your heavenly father will hold you accountable. And if the character of God doesn't motivate the believer enough or the impartial judgment of God does not motivate the believer enough, I believe Peter saves the best for last. Look at verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransom, meaning bought back from the chain, the death of sin. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter says, church, will at least the blood of Jesus motivate you? The fact that in your imperfection, when you could do nothing to get to God, I sent my son who spilled his blood for you. Is my son's blood enough for you? 
to wake up every day and say, this life's not for me. It's for Christ. He reminds us that our salvation was costly. He says, man, earth's most precious metal, silver and gold, they're like junk, leftover rotten fruit on the table compared to the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Our salvation was costly. It cost God the shedding of his blood. And if we ever have our sin nature entice us and say, "Mm, do I really need to sacrifice that for God? No sacrifice of this life that we would ever give up could compare to the sacrificial blood of God's son that was shed for you and shed for me. Man, if we were a church where it wasn't just a value on our starting point wall, but we were a church who every day prepared our minds for action by being in God's word. If we were a church that that it was our goal to always keep eternity in mind and know that our focus and, and, and our confidence was in what to come when Christ returns to make all things new. Amen. If we were a church who together held one another accountable and made it our mission each day to say no to my objective, my subjective desires and feelings, and always yes to God's objective truth. And when people say, why do you live differently? Why don't you indulge in this stuff? What changed in you? You say, because I am a child of the living God. And my heavenly father loves me enough that he says, model my character. And it's my aim not to earn my salvation. That's a done deal in Christ. But it's my aim to please him because he cares about everything I do. And I live differently because I value the shed blood of Christ that even allow me to have a relationship with the living God. We're going to sing a song, and my prayer is that these these words wash over us and that the precious blood of Jesus that was shed for you and shed for me, that truth would never go stale in the life of a believer. Oh, the blood of Jesus washes me. Every, Every time we sing, the blood of Jesus washes over you. Oh, the blood of Jesus was shed for me. What a sacrifice. Again, there is nothing we could sacrifice in this life that would compare to the sacrificial blood of Jesus. What a sacrifice that saved my life. And it's only by the blood of Jesus that we can have true victory. And the culture today the world today, your coworkers today, your neighbors today, your children today, the children upstairs, the youth down the hall, they need to see a victorious church that's demonstrating what it looks like as one who's motivated with everything they got to live for Christ in a renewing every day washed by his precious blood. of 
See my life 
if you're able, please stand as we'll close in prayer. And if we could tag one more way to the ones we learned from Peter, way number four is have brothers and sisters in Christ in your corner to keep you accountable, to have a place to go. We're, we're not going to be perfect uh, in this battle with our sin nature. But man, how, what a blessing to have the, the church, the body of Christ, to cling to, to go to. So if you could use prayer today, we're going to have a prayer team up front. Uh, please come up front. We'd love to pray for you, whatever's going on in your life. Father, we thank you for today. God, again, as we started talking about our sin, talking about our depravity as man apart from you. It is, it is not often a, a joyful topic to talk about. It is solemn. Um, it's humbling. Maybe for some in the room right now, you're hitting them in a certain spot in their life. God, I pray that each person here, whatever they're, they're dealing with, that they would confess to you, that they would not feel defeated but instead know that they can be renewed and empowered to live for you because of the spirit of God that lives within them. And God, if someone's here today and they are not yet a child of God, God, I pray that you would open up their heart and they would come to trust in Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior and begin that journey as a child of the living God, still with that sin nature, to battle each day, but they're now part of the family of Christ. And one thing's for certain, their eternity rests in Jesus. So Father, as we go, I pray that we would go as we sang, victorious because of the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. And it's in his name we pray.